I have to chuckle at uh, Chad's words earlier this morning. This is not that much snow. You know, for some of us who lived in New England for almost 20 years, this is practically a spring day. There are places in northern Maine where it hasn't snowed unless you can't see the bottom half of the barn. That's why there aren't many people living in northern Maine. Those people are nutty. (laughs) Lots of moose, that's right. Good friend from our, of ours from our New England days bought an old hearse in his college years. He was uh, he was an interesting fellow. He did a little traveling around in that hearse during his college years. Loves to tell the story of one trip when he was getting tired of driving decided that he'd just pull off in the next small town on the road and, and take a nap. Plenty of room in the back of the hearse to take a nap. This is a true story. I'm not, I'm not pulling this one on you, I promise. And wouldn't you know, as he comes to the edge of the town, there's a cemetery. What better place to park and take a nap than in a cemetery? I mean, who would think that there's anything unusual about a hearse sitting in a cemetery? And so he crawled in the back of the car and stretched out and started to take his nap. And it wasn't too long before the groundskeeper came prowling around and noticed this strange hearse that he didn't recognize sitting in the cemetery. And Nelson loves to tell the story of the look on this fellow's face when he peered into the back of the hearse and he's trying to see if there's anything in there And Nelson hears someone at the window and sits up. (laughs) He said, I've never heard a man scream like that. (laughs) Well, I thought about that story, believe it or not, in relationship to this series that we're in. Our theme verse, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The creed of the follower of Jesus. We've learned that to be crucified with Christ is a theological truth with enormous practical implications. And we're we're beginning to explore those practical implications. Theologically, we know Jesus died for us. And when we put our faith in him, his death counts as our death. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We are dead to sin, but we're very much alive to God. We've been enlivened by the Spirit of God in us. And we want to live, I think, lives that surprise and confound people in the same way that that groundskeeper was surprised when he peeked in the back of the hearse. He was not expecting what he found. As followers of Jesus, friends, we're after that same kind of surprise. We really are. We want to show people a life like they've never seen before. And if they have some of the negative opinions that, that we know prevail in our culture towards those who call themselves Christians, if they have those negative opinions, then perhaps living as followers of Jesus, truly death to self, alive to Christ will give them pause to rethink some of the things that they see and hear. And I believe the surprise will come 
as we live out the values of the kingdom of God. Because we've said that those values are grounded in the nature and character of God. And those values are not self-focused. They are not self-exalting. They are values that are focused upon the character of God, the glory of God, the wonder of God, the beauty of God, our amazement that God would save us. It's huge. Values of the kingdom are values that drive us to give our lives away for the sake of God versus the values of our culture, which are self-interest and self-preservation. Values of humanity. So two Sundays ago, we read Paul's words to the Corinthian believers. The cross of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Paul sets up this contrast and says, but it makes no sense to the world. In fact, he uses the word foolishness. The cross is foolishness to the world. The way our God works and the things that he values simply do not make sense to the world. A perfectly just God dies for sinful people who have rebelled against him. What kind of sense does that make? Well, it only makes sense in the kingdom of God. And Paul writes that when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, he becomes for us wisdom from God. That is, for us, our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. What kind of sense does that make? doesn't make any sense by the, the standards of the world where we have to earn the things that we are given, things that we achieve. Last Sunday we learned what it means for Jesus to become our righteousness. It means that our sin of self-exaltation and rejection of God has been forgiven once and for all. I hope you thought about that often throughout the course of the week. Our sin is no longer counted against us. The slate wiped clean. Yes, hallelujah. Erased from the record to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ is to be wrapped in a robe of royalty. And it occurred to me this week, you remember the story of the prodigal son? He returned to the father. And what did the father say? Get the best robe. We've been wrapped in the best robe. The righteousness of Christ And what did we do to deserve it? Nothing. Except turn away from our rebellion, take God for what he says is true about us, believe that we are lost without him, and that he will save us. Believe that we are lost in our sins, separated from our life with God, which is the equivalent in the story of living in a pig pen, in desperate need of a Savior. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus, and we find ourselves wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness counts as our righteousness. Our sin no longer counted against us. It occurs to me that the word, the word that comes to my mind is secure. We are secure. And the reason I say that is because of that, that second sentence, the life that I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That takes faith. The faith that we exercised when we we put our trust and our confidence in God to save us 
It's the same faith required to live out what we believe, to believe that, that God is our Father and that God is over our life, superintending our lives, filtering those circumstances and events that go in and out of our lives, and He's in control. And all of that out of a heart of love to grow us more and more in the image of His Son. That takes huge faith. And the reason that it does is because if we're going to live out the faith, if we're going to live this life in the body that we are now in, dead to Christ, alive to the Son, it's not a private thing. Never was meant to be a private thing. It's public. God intends for us to go public about what we believe. He intends for us to live our lives with other people in a way that points to Him. Not us. Him. And this, this is really hard. This is really hard. Because it just goes against everything that is natural for us in the, in the sinful flesh. We believe that being wrapped in the righteousness of Christ means that our sin is no longer counted against us. That God has forgiven us of the greatest sin possible then. Uh Uh-oh, that means that he wants us to act the same way in relationships with others. That we don't hold people's sins against them, their, their shortcomings, their failures, their quirks, the way that they disappoint us, the things that they've said that have hurt us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We forgive them, we said last week, for being human. We forgive them for being human. They can't help it. Neither can we. But God comes along and he redeems people. He came along and he redeemed many of us and and he gave us life in his son. So we then in turn can forgive others for their humanity because God is in the process of using us in their lives to point to his redemption and his life change. So let me say just a little bit more of that, and then we'll go on to the next truth that Paul uh, taught to the Corinthians. The stunning truth that I think ought to just grab a hold of us more than it does, God does not stop Loving us, ever. And I've said this to you many times, that you can't do anything to to make God love you more or make him love you less. You know, he loves you as much today as he did yesterday, and he's not going to love you more tomorrow. His love is constant. And and what that does is is it frees us from the tendency that we all have to think that, that somehow I've done something to earn God's love. I haven't. And, and nor do I do things that somehow take his love away. God's love is a perfect, constant love that flows from his perfect, constant character. No matter what we do, even when we do those things that clearly are hurtful to him, 
that are clearly a rejection of God, even if for a moment in our lives, when we choose to give our hearts away to someone or something else, when we bow our knee to worship, even for just a moment, to something that we think is going to provide and take care of us, that is his role. When we live in such a way that communicates to him that he is not enough, God has put his love upon us and continues to love us right through those times. And he waits for our return again from the pig pen. God puts up with so much from us. So how does that truth impact our relationships? How does it make us feel about others? Have you got your, your mental list? You know, those who've been naughty and nice. And therefore, they may get the gift of your love or not. We all do that. We've all got that list. But is that not the lesson that Jesus taught his followers in that great parable of the unforgiving servant? You remember the one who'd been forgiven a, an enormous debt by his master? By today's equivalent, it was millions of dollars. He could never repay it. So what does he do? Oh, thank you so much. Runs out the door. Bumps into a fellow servant who owes him 10 bucks and has the guy thrown in jail. You know, it's just, it's hyperbole to the max. Jesus wants to make the point. <clears throat> God's people conduct their lives differently. The values of the kingdom of God cause us to live and think and act in weird ways by the world's standards. The servant didn't get it. His forgiveness was outrageously extravagant. If we understand that our sin against God has been put on the cross with Christ and his righteousness has been given to us, then if we really get that, it seems to me that we will forgive others for their humanness when when they are rude and hurtful and careless and thoughtless and selfish and disrespectful and unappreciative, all manner of things that inflict pain on our lives. Oh, well. Oh, well, we're dead. We're dead to that stuff. We're dead to that old nature that kept a record of those things. And and the life that we now live is is in this body. We, We live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And his actions, his actions and his thoughts and his character, it's all that really matters in our lives, not those of other human beings. You with me? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Man, let me tell you, I don't practice what I preach, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> this is really hard stuff. I want to, and I, I, I surrender daily. To the Spirit of God. But my friends, if we are not determined to live this way by the power of the Spirit of God in our lives, who, who is there, who lives in us in order to accomplish the life that God has called us to, if we're not willing to surrender and, and to think hard about these things and to wrestle with this, then what are we talking about? What, what is witness? Where is our witness? 
What exactly is our witness if we are not surprising people with the life of God in us when they peer into the window of our lives? Because what they're used to is a different life. A life that is filled with death. Where's the witness? You remember back in 2006, a man by the name of Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse, dismissed all of the kids except for 10 girls, shot all 10 of them, and then killed himself. Five of the girls died, five of the girls lived. Well, six months later, you may remember that U.S. News and World Report went to the community. They returned to that community because they wanted to find out how the Amish were coping. And the reporters discovered that the tragedy had somehow brought people together, the Amish and non-Amish, resulting in what they could only describe as a deeper sense of community. They, they witnessed them talking together and, and holding one another and crying together and comforting one another, supporting one another. Do you remember the Amish extended uh, immediately uh, a, a, a gesture of love and kindness to the killer's spouse. And that news report just took the nation by storm. I think probably in this decade, it is one of the most, one of the most powerful examples of what it means to be crucified with Christ. Dead to self. Alive to God for the sake of others who need him. Having the righteousness of Christ means that we bring the presence of Christ to others. In the power of the Spirit who lives in us, then we treat people, no matter who they are, as God has treated us. Period. I want to add all the what ifs and but what about that and but what if this and no. We do. We treat them with grace and patience and forgiveness. And we let go of the expectations that we have of them to live any other way than how humans live with faults and with failures and with inconsistencies because we are imperfect creatures. And we live that way because we are dead to the ways of the sin nature and alive by faith to new life in Christ. That is what the Spirit does in us. So tell me, do you think it was difficult for the Amish to forgive and do what they did? Oh my gosh. I would say absolutely. How did the parents of the dead girls feel? at first? What did they have to wrestle with? How did they struggle to extend forgiveness and move past the hatred that they may have felt for the one who murdered their daughters? So let's turn to the second thing that Christ is for us. And our text this morning is from 1 Peter. We're going to pick up in the middle of chapter 2 where he's been talking about Jesus Christ as the living stone. The living stone that God is building something on. And of course, he's building salvation upon Jesus. He says that stone is rejected by some, 
But that stone is chosen by God, and God's people then become living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. In other words, Peter is saying God's people build their lives on this stone, this cornerstone, which is Jesus, and together they become built into something that lives in such a way that spiritual sacrifices are going out to God all the time in the way that they live their lives, the things that they say, the things that they do, the very ways that they think. Again, it's a contrast with the way God does things and the way that his people do things with what the world understands. God has done something amazing through Jesus. Peter wants us to know that. Some get it, some don't. The implication being that that some will understand and some will not. But no matter, Peter says, carry on. So, We're going to stand and read from 1 Peter 2. That's the background. Let's stand and read together these these words. Together. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Oh, my sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Karen, let's put that next slide up. Thank you. Live such good lives, Peter says, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. I want you to just talk with someone nearby for just a couple of minutes. Why would God's people be accused of doing wrong if they are living good lives? See what your neighbor thinks. Why would they be accused of doing wrong if they are living good lives? Okay, we ready? What do you think? What, uh, What do you think Peter's getting at here? And particularly in the, it's good insight, particularly in the Roman Empire, where, you know, we know well, Caesar, Caesar was Lord. You know, he was, he was the God of Rome. You think? <laughs> Just a smidge. Thank you. Good thoughts. What else? What else? Wow. Wow. Did you hear that back there? The, the conviction of folks who saw these people, these believers, living good lives and they were convicted and, and, and feeling like they needed to, to perhaps change and do something that they didn't want to do. Rick and I were just talking about a similar thing this morning. You think about the, the martyrdom of Stephen. You remember? I mean, Stephen didn't... I, I read that and I'm just amazed. I think, you know, he should have been cursing those guys. He should have been mad as heck. You know, just nasty, picking up rocks and throwing them back. But he just stood there. You know, I see the heavens open. 
you know, and, and the Son of God, you know, and, and what did those who were throwing the stones do? They covered their ears and they didn't want to hear what he was saying. You know, Stephen's response was, was a godly response to a very ungodly situation. Very powerful, very powerful. What else? Some other thoughts. Okay, sure. Yeah, best offense is a good defense. Yes, okay. Again, the idea of kind of being threatened by something that someone is doing that's different. Not a one of us, brother. Not a one. <laughs> and and, and I, I would want to take that a step further and say, and how do, we, how do we respond to persons, which of course is where Peter's going, how do we respond to persons who think that we are wrong or accuse us of doing wrong? How do we respond? How do we respond to, to threats, to hostility, if it, if it comes to that? Anyone else? Yep, could be, could be. And, and we would categorize that as, well, that's really unfair. You know, you're ragging on me for the one little thing that I've done. What about, but there again, what's our response? You know, that's where Peter's going with this. What's our response? What, um, I didn't ask you to, to, to comment specifically on this, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's a powerful statement. On the day that God visits us, you know, um, I think, and, and, and most commentators tend to think that, that Peter is thinking in terms of, you know, the, the second coming of Christ. You know, so that when, when Christ visits us, when Christ comes to earth, when Christ comes for, for those who are his own, will these pagans recognize by virtue of our lives that there really is a God and perhaps be ready to meet him when he arrives. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a witness. It's a witness that, that we leave in, in the hands of God. Well, the text obviously is, is all about the holiness of God's people, the entire text that we read together. And I think it wonderfully illustrates what Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he said that Jesus has become our holiness. Remember, Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. What does it mean for us who are crucified with Christ that that he has become our holiness? Well, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for holy means set apart. It means separate. It means sacred. It's, It's getting at the difference between God and his creation. God is totally other. God is a, a different, he, he's different in substance from his creation and his creatures, in, including humanity. God is, is completely set apart, not in terms of distance. We talk about the imminence and the transcendence of God, but he's set apart. He's in a category all his own. There is nothing that is, is comparable to him. In the New Testament, Greek word is, is similar, set apart, revered. Sacred, it's worthy of something. Something is sacred, it's worthy of, of being worshipped. Now listen again to Peter's descriptions that we just read in the larger text. Here's what he says about the people of God. They are a chosen people. That is, a, is an emphasis on God's initiative in bringing people to himself. Bringing people into to his Love and his family, a royal priesthood, 
could also be translated a royal house or a body of priests. But that's really an emphasis upon the position of God's people and their role in the world and in relationship to the world's people. Do you ever think of yourself as a priest to the world? Priest to the world. Bringing the presence of God to the world, bringing the brokenness of the world into the presence of God and and mediating as priests did. A holy nation set apart and different in substance and function. A people belonging to God. Boy, there's a clear statement of ownership. Who we belong to. Whose, whose property we are. And all of those, they really fall under the larger category, at least I think in what Peter's saying here, what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. We were set apart, chosen by God, set apart. We have become a royal priesthood. He's making us into a royal priesthood. Well, there's something very different. We've been, again, set apart. We're a holy nation. It means we're not like the rest of the people groups. We have been set apart for God. We're a people belonging to him. That is truly a statement of distinction. Those who are crucified with Christ no longer have their sin held against them, but in fact they are righteous in the eyes of God, and therefore they are set apart. They are holy for a specific work, for a specific purpose that is distinct from all other people. And the language conjures up for me a word special. We are special. Not by anything that we've done, but by what God has done. There's not a haughtiness that comes when we think of ourselves as special. We say it with a sense of amazement and awe that we are special to God. Jesus has made us holy and separate. When we are in Christ, we are in a different category of people versus those who are not in Christ. And that means, that means that there is special treatment that we receive because we are special. It means that just like Jesus' righteousness was given to us, so is his holiness. He has become, what is his has become ours. We have a special place in the heart of God because we have been set apart by God for God. Does that make sense? I think it's so powerful. The the Old Testament image of the Israelites being a separate nation in the midst of all of the other people groups. You know, to, to be in the camp of God, to be in the camp of the Israelites, was the place to be. Because when you were in his camp, you received his blessings, and you saw his faithfulness, and you saw his miraculous power. To be in the camp of God is to be holy. It is to be in a special place. Jesus' mission while on earth was to make the character of God known. His mission then has become our mission. As he was set apart for a distinct work, we are set apart for a distinct work. His purpose has become our purpose. Just as Jesus was totally other in this world, we are totally other in this world. 
set apart for a distinct mission to make God known. And what does Peter say that is? It's to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. To declare who God is. To speak about who God is and to live out who God is in our lives. One commentator says, this means that the people of God are to advertise God to the world. I thought it was kind of a catchy way of saying it. Make him known everywhere that we go, in everything that we do, in everything that we say. I want to make just a couple of quick observations about this. And, and then we're going we're gonna to continue with this theme, go a little bit further on it uh, next Sunday together as well. First, I think it's important for us to remember, and this is probably one of those duh statements, this is not a part-time purpose. This is not a hobby that we have been given in our spare time. This has been a, this is a, a redirected life. This is a new nature This is when anyone is in Christ, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, they are a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. You know, the the language is, this is is life-absorbing. This is our focus. We've been made new by the righteousness of Jesus. We've been empowered by the Spirit of God Himself. We have a mission. It is a full-time, life-consuming mission. How are we doing with that? Wow. We get distracted, don't we? You know, life, life is distractions. We, we, t- <laughs> we tend to compartmentalize our lives into church stuff and then everything else. Jesus didn't compartmentalize. Jesus' life was a consistent witness of words and actions to the character of God. And it seems to me that that we need to begin to think less about church stuff and to think more about being the people of God, which ironically is the definition of the church in the scriptures. It's the people of God. But, but if you're like me, and, and I think most of us, we, we tend to think in terms of the activities of the church, the church being the building, and, and so it's the activities that we do when we come to this building. And that happens on Sunday mornings and maybe at a couple of other points in the week, and then the rest of our life is non-church stuff. That's just really not the mission that we have been called to. You know, the, the building is, is, is incidental. I mean, look around the world to the places where the church of Jesus Christ is growing the most quickly, and it's in places where people don't have large spaces to gather in places where there is intense persecution, but they are coming together as the people of God because that's what the church is. Those who are crucified with Christ are not crucified some of the time. It's all the time. We're crucified all the time. And that, my friends, that's where the power of our witness is. And I think... I think there are a couple of audiences that, that we think in terms of being witnesses to. I tend to think more of one and not the other. And again, we'll, we'll tie this one in a little bit more next week. We think in terms of our witness to the watching world, the folks who are looking into the window of our lives, and we want to surprise them with life and not death. 
But I think there's also another audience that the scripture speaks to, and, and that, is, that is the supernatural powers and forces of darkness. And it seems to me, just my opinion, that that might be the one that is the most powerful motivator for us to think in terms of consistency. You know, some have said your character is really determined by who you are when no one is watching. Well, we tend to think of our Christian life as being visible to those who are in the flesh and blood and and watching us, but our lives are being watched all the time by the powers of darkness that we can't even see. And, you know, in my mind, I just take that a step further, and, and, you know, they're they're looking for opportunities to, to mock God. They're looking for opportunities to say, you made a mistake calling him, calling her, and look at this. Again, and I don't say that to give us this sense of duty, this sense of, oh my gosh, this obligation, it's, it's one more thing that we have to worry about. I say it in that sense of, wow, there is a larger witness at stake than just flesh and blood that we see around us. But there is, there's a larger picture that's going on, in, and it's impacted, I think, by how we live our lives in faithfulness to God, in the big stuff that everybody sees and the small stuff that nobody sees because somebody does see it. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about that as well. There's a second observation that I, that I love in this text that we've read together. Peter's descriptions about the people of God. Did you notice the plural emphasis? A chosen people, not a chosen person. Oh, we are chosen persons. There's no denying that. But we are put together in Peter's thinking at this point to be a chosen people. Think strength in numbers. Chosen people. A royal priesthood, not just a priest, individual priest, but a priesthood, part of something much larger and, and, and more powerful, if I can say it that way. A holy nation, again, part of something that, that has a lot of us in it. A holy nation, a nation, and a people belonging to God. Not just a bunch of individuals, but a people. Each one special, each one loved, each one known by God, and saved by God for the purpose of making Him known in the world. How did the Amish respond the way that they did? Exactly. Not in their own power. They responded in the power of God's Spirit and they responded together. If you know anything about the Amish, they're a tight-knit community. doesn't mean they're a perfect community any more than, than any community is. But there is, a, there is a focus on the importance of community. And, and what comes from that? Well, I think it's it's a place that we, that we work out our struggles. And let's be honest, 
in the evangelical tradition, we don't work out our struggles well together. We don't even want to admit to our struggles. Because if I admit to my struggles, then you're going to think less of me. Oh, wait, that's right, I'm dead to that. So I don't need to worry about what you think of me. It's, it's a tragedy that we are as individualized in our, our living and our thinking as we are in this culture. I think Peter is driving the point home of God's people together make for a powerful witness because they are the presence of God in number, in society. And, and as one is down, the other is up. As one is discouraged, the other is encouraged. As one is weak, the other is strong. As one has to cry, well, there are people to cry with them and then they rejoice with them when that comes too. That's the nature of community and the powerful witness of God's people that I think is life-transforming and shows life like the world doesn't always see from those who claim to be God's people. Paul has in mind when he writes that Christ has become our holiness is that because of the Spirit of Christ who indwells us, we are a holy people. We are set apart for God's use in this world. It is a truth that we must live into. By virtue of the Spirit in us, we are distinct. We are saved for a very different purpose. And that purpose brings us back to where we've started, the creed of the follower of Jesus. Purpose is not to live for self. We've been set free from that. We have been crucified to that. We have been given the power to live for God and to make his glory known. And to do that together, to struggle with one another, not struggle against one another, which is way too often the case. So praise team, come on up, and I'm going to pray as you come. Father, we are grateful for your word today. We thank you for it. Thank you for its truth. Uh, Thank you for the theological truth that we know with our heads that we have been crucified with Christ, that he has become our righteousness, that he has become our holiness. We know those things because that's orthodox and we want to be correct in what we know. The reality of it is, is that Oftentimes, our lives and our thoughts and our actions and our responses in our humanness are far away from that truth. And we ask that your spirit would continue to just work away at our hearts. Remind us of the incredible call to salvation that you have graced us with. Remind us of the incredible task that you have given to us, the purpose for our existence, to live for your glory and to make you known. And remind us of the beauty of being able to do that together. I don't have to be the only one who who thinks like this. There are others who think like this. And and we can gather together and we can encourage and we can challenge and we can can push one another on, spur one another on to to good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being your people. Thank you for the holiness of Christ. We are set apart. We are special. Thank you in his name. Amen.